to begin by letting you know that <clears throat> what I'm going to share this morning was difficult to write, and it will be difficult to understand <clears throat> if you miss little spaces. I know what it's like to sit out there and get going and doze off, but if you doze off too long this morning, it's not going to make sense. However, stay with me, and maybe this morning we'll answer some long, deep-seated questions about your faith that you've had in the past. Now, we've begun a series <clears throat> that we're calling New Wineskins, and the phrase was borrowed, I borrowed from Jesus, and it's found in three places in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew 9, 14 to 17, Mark 2, 18 to 22, and Luke 5, 33 through 39. So, bringing us all on the same page at the beginning this morning, I want to talk about this issue, get reintroduced to this concept of new wineskins. Jesus spoke a story, a parable, a narrative to answer a question that was asked of him by the disciples of John the Baptist. Let's look at that together. Matthew 9, 14 to 17 gives us the context. Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? A good question. But Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on a garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins will break. The wine will be spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both then are preserved." Now, the backstory to this question about fasting that John disciples asked Jesus is this. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was in prison. He was there for offending Herod Antipas, the ruler, uh, about his sins. And so while John is in prison, Jesus' ministry continues. And so John's disciples go and they watch Jesus, and then they come back and they tell John what they see Jesus doing. Now, John was an Essene. He was of the religious community of the Essenes, which in fact uh, we can liken to a monk in the, day, in the ways that we think. He made certain vows. Uh, <clears throat> vows of poverty. He abstained from certain drink and food. He lived out in the desert. And so John had this, 
very disciplined mindset as to who the Messiah would be. I mean, we live according to these laws and regulations, and then the Messiah comes, and he doesn't abide by the rules and regulations. And so John's disciples go back to him and said, you know, he's, he's acting strange. It's Jesus. He eats with sinners. He's a friend to sinners. He doesn't keep the laws like fasting that we all keep. Why is it that he can do those, and his disciples can do those things, or not do those things, And John began to think, is he really the one? John began to wonder, man, maybe I've made a mistake. He began to doubt and wonder, is he really who he says he is, or he claims to be? Now remember, this is John the Baptist. John the baptizer. This is the forerunner called by God the forerunner of Jesus. This is the same guy who baptized Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove upon him, and heard the voice of God thunder out, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet, in spite of all of that, John himself sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Dude, are you really the one? Or do we need to keep looking? Because you're not acting like we thought you should, or we thought that you would. Now let me ask you this question. If it was difficult for John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, if it was difficult for John to get his mind around Jesus, it's no wonder the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders looked at him the way that they did. I mean, he crashed their party. I mean, it was like an earthquake, a volcano to the religious community when Jesus showed up and began acting or introducing them to God. It was explosive and outrageous in the day. Mind-blowing. It was utterly incomprehensible for the people of the religious society to understand Jesus as revealing to them God. There was too much religious structure in the day. It blew up their conventional mindsets And they found no place for Jesus in their system. He was greater than their concepts. 
And so their religious wineskins could not contain the new wine of Jesus. Today, beginning this morning and in the next several weeks, I want to share with you the five greatest reasons for the new wine, new wineskins. The five things that Jesus brought into that culture, into that religious system, and into the world, the mindset Jesus brought that exploded that religious system. And let me tell you why. Because you and I still fall into that trap of religious system. Works orientation. It's easy to do. The five things we're going to look at that are the reasons for the new wineskin. First of all, the mercy and grace of God. And I'm going to share that with you this morning. I'm so excited to share this message. We're going to look at the mercy and grace of God. Then we're going to look at the forgiveness of God. Then we're going to look at the agape love of God. And then the peace of God. And then the hope of God that Jesus brought into that religious system that would have exploded the old wineskins. Couldn't contain him. But first, and what we'll deal with this morning is the mercy and grace of God that Jesus brought that they could not understand. I decided to put the terms mercy and grace together in this study because we often use them interchangeably. Someone has likened mercy and grace to two sides of the same coin. There is some difference or distinction uh, in this. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. Okay? Grace, then, is receiving what I don't deserve. Make sense? Mercy is God not computing my sins upon me and judging me, and I go to eternal hell. That's what I deserve. Mercy is removing that condemnation. Grace is giving me something that I don't deserve, that I didn't work for, that I couldn't earn. The grace and mercy of God. Two sides of the same coin. One built upon the other. It's not really mercy or grace. It's more mercy and grace. Both and. Now, allow me to shift gears for just a minute. Because in order for us to grasp the reason that the mercy and grace of Jesus exploded the religious system, the old wineskins, we need to study a theological concept this morning embraced by all conservative Christians. It's called progressive revelation. Write that down somewhere so you'll remember. Progressive revelation. Now hang with me, okay? Because 
Again, this may answer some long, uh, doubting, difficult, wondering questions in your soul about the Bible and about your faith. In order for us to understand the grace and mercy of God, we've got to realize this concept of progressive revelation. Let me illustrate it this way. My wife, Pam, is a first-grade teacher at Farwell Elementary School. Her primary responsibility is to teach reading to six-year-olds. Now, what if on the first day of class, August, late August, September, whenever, first day of class, she has all these bright-eyed six-year-olds sitting before her, And my wife takes chalk and writes on the board this sentence. The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. Anybody recognize that? The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. This is a pangram, which means that this sentence has all 26 letters of the alphabet in it. So... My wife stands up before Pam, I'll call her Pam. Pam stands up before her little six-year-old class, and she writes that sentence on the board. And then she turns to her students, and she says to this, these six-year-olds, as she's underlining that sentence, she says to them, in order to pass to second grade, Each of you must be able to read this sentence. Now, who's first? If she did that, she'd probably have about half her class crying. The other half wanting to go home. Why? Because they have no idea what that (laughs) sentence says. They're six. They don't have the fundamental foundation to be able to read and interpret that sentence with all 26 letters in the alphabet. Pam wouldn't do that, of course. No would any teacher, because they would know the students have no foundation to be able to accomplish that task. So instead, Pam would begin probably by teaching children, the children, the alphabet. Fundamental stuff. She would teach them which are consonants and which are vowels. She would would teach them what sounds that each letter makes. She would later teach some basic grammar, sentence structure, punctuation, where she would help these children understand what it is to read. And then she would build these things, one on top of the other, the alphabet, uh, uh, sentence structure, one thing on top of the other, until finally it all comes together in their hearts, their minds, and so that the day that they leave, they can look up at the screen and read that sentence 
That's what God did. To understand the mercy and grace of God, we have to go back to this fundamental concept of progressive revelation that God didn't reveal himself all at one time. It would have made no sense for God to understand, to reveal himself all at one time. Walk with me through this very quickly because it is impossible. You'll leave without being stirred in your spirit about the mercy and grace of God if you miss this. Just like Pam would build one concept upon the other to eventually bring it all together to read, God revealed himself in a step-by-step method. For instance, first was law. The Ten Commandments, yes. But there are <coughs> 613 instructions, 613 laws in the Old Testament relative to moral and civil uh, laws. And they, they, God gave them to become the foundation for the revelation of who he is. He started with the law because he wanted to say, okay, this is who I am. I am holy. And the law also didn't just say this is who God is. The law also said, and this is who you are. You are holy. I mean, God is holy, and we are not. And no matter how we keep trying to accomplish that law and live out that law, we will fail, as did those during the, during the time of the law. God gave the law to be, Galatians 3, to be a teacher, an instructor about who God is. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Obviously, the law, the law of God applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And so God said, okay, step one in you knowing me is this is who I am. I am holy. This is the foundation of who I am in my relationship with you. Law. But then comes the second step when he said, I'm not just law, I am judgment. In other words, God was saying, I don't play games with my holiness. God was saying, I mean business with my law. It is not optional. And God was telling them 
that there are consequences to the choices that we make. Twice in Ezekiel 18, in verse 4 and in verse 20, the Bible says, The soul that sins shall die. Romans 6, 23, The wages of sin is death. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. The facts are these. The facts are these. God revealed himself first through his law. And on the backside of the law, he revealed himself as judgment. He deemed us moral and spiritual failures. We are guilty before God. We cannot keep his law. He has confirmed our guilt and condemned our souls. God has said, the soul that sins will die. Step one, law. This is who I am. This is how I'm going to relate to you and you to me. Step two, you've all failed. You've all missed the mark. And so, the soul that sins shall die. Now step three, where we can finally bring it all together. The mercy and grace of God. Paul gives a summary of this reality in Romans 5, 12 through 16. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. Law, judgment, for everyone's sin. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Adam is a symbol, a representative of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. There is a big difference between Adam's sin that condemned us, judged us unto death, and the mercy and grace of God. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And as the result of this gracious gift of God, grace and mercy, we have very different results of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift... God's mercy and grace leads us into being made right with God even though we are guilty of many sins. Do you see the progression? 
progressive revelation. God says, this is who I am in law. If, realize, you want to know why the Old Testament was so bloody? This is why. God had to show first who he was in terms of fundamental, foundational, this is who I am. And then following on that, he said, I, I'm holy, and you're going to be judged to death for what you did. Had these not first two steps been taken, mercy would, would have no meaning. Oh, you want to see the mercy and grace of God. What does that mean? Do, do we realize, people, do we realize what that costs, the price paid for us to walk through the law and judgment and be made right with God? The mercy and grace of God makes no sense outside of this progressive understanding of who he is. Ray Ortland, who's a pastor and a writer, said this. This will help. We were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his own way, but he didn't understand us. He came home every evening and he asked us, So how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything on your to-do list that I gave you? So many demands and expectations. And as hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy Mr. Law. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law was always pointing his finger at my faults. And the worst of it was, he was right. Do better tomorrow? We didn't because we couldn't. But then Mr. Law died, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening, and the house is a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove, and we have had other men in the house during the day. But he comes in, and he sweeps us into his arms. And he says, I love you. I chose you. I called you. I died for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And our heart melts. We don't understand such love. We expected judgment, condemnation. We expected him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us. But he doesn't. He treats us so lovingly. We're so glad to belong to him now and forever. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. But being married to Mr. Grace is changing us deeply within 
and it showed. Give me five more minutes. Because I want to take grace and apply it in our lives right now. I want to apply it to you. Let's take this mercy and grace of God that comes on top of law and judgment and the blood of Christ covers it all. Let's take that grace and apply it to you right now. I want you to know where you sit in whatever condition, whatever state. I want you to know that you are very deeply loved by God. John, that song, where's John? That song we sang uh, tell, tell me again those those words man just melted my heart that one he is for us and not against us say it again yeah, the, yeah that song and it says that I am who you say I am and you are for me and not against me man tears are running down my face me apply that to you right where you sit despite what you may have done yesterday or last week or tomorrow you are deeply profoundly you are perfectly loved right now and accepted as you are let's apply it to your eternity Don't be afraid about tomorrow. What can man do to us? What is death for us but a door into eternity? Let God speak to you to affirm to you not just that he loves you today, not just that he's going to walk with you today, but that he is going to bring you into eternity. Not because of good works. not because of anything but his grace to you and then let me apply it thirdly to your circumstances right now whatever's going on in your life right now whatever you face tomorrow whatever is heavy on your heart whatever burden you feel whatever fear that is there let the grace of God consume that You're not living according to the law. You're not being judged. You are divinely lit. Let the grace of God consume whatever burdens your heart right now.